Welcome to another episode of the Get Your Edge podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bott from Sports Advantage in Madison. I'm here with my co-host, Coach Dean Manchie over in Kimberly. Coach, how we doing? They're really excited today for our guest. And uh, as we were talking, he's from Florida. So the weather's a lot better down there than it is up here right now, Brian. Yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Um, quite a bit warmer. <laughs> um, state wrestling just finished up last night. Uh, in Wisconsin, uh, state hockey, I believe, is next weekend. We got boys and girls basketball going. A lot of good stuff going on, but just around the corner, Dino, we got track season. Absolutely, track season starts, I believe, March six, and we've talked about this on on some of our other podcasts. Wisconsin athletes, any athletes, all right. If you're not out for baseball, softball, soccer, go out for track. All right, become a better athlete. Um, learn how to run better. Learn how to be more explosive. Worst case scenario, you get to run some sprints and lift some weights and, and get ready for summer conditioning. So with that, we are going to bring our guest on, Michael Fahey from Tallahassee, Florida. Coach, how you doing over there? I'm doing good. How are y'all? We're, we're great. Well, we're really excited. Uh, Michael's got a, he's got a dual role for our podcast today. Um, he's a, he's a, he works with high school athletes. Um, definitely, I'm, I'm going to assume he's a believer in the conjugate method of how he trains his athletes. Um, he's got a very unique uh, Instagram handle, which we may get into in a little bit, but he's also the producer of what has become my favorite movie, West Side versus the World, which dives into West Side Barbell, Louis Simmons, and a lot of great information. Um, those of you that follow and listen to our podcast, obviously know we've had Laura Phelps on, uh, and Laura's been into Madison to work with our staff. So we're really excited to have Michael on. Michael, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and let's get this bad boy underway. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I uh, I started off as an athlete. I had a dad who was uh, maniacal about training. Um, it's always been his passion and his real hobby. So I, I kind of inherited that um, sort of a couple times in my life from him. Um, but he found Westside Barbell in the, in the nineties and, um, bought a reverse hyper and, uh, he, he played semi-pro football until he was 37. He was a stockbroker. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the market would close and he'd run out to the field and, you know, he was the old dude playing like middle linebacker against a bunch of guys who had just gotten out of like FAMU and FSU. Cause we're down here in Tallahassee. And, um, so he gave me this really unique uh, insight and exposure to uh, to training and to Westside. Um, and he's just always been a super ambitious person who uh, was probably like pretty average genetically, um, but was convinced that like you can get a lot more out of the body than than most people are getting, um, which I think is the the first real step that in all walks of life, people need to understand is like, you can set your expectations a whole lot higher than, than most people do. Um, but so in the late nineties, he got super into West side. We started using bands and chains and trying to follow the templates as much as we could. And he would call Louie, um, a few times a, a month and, and talk to him and, and try and decipher, you know, what was getting lost in translation between powerlifting USA and, and, you know, our gym, because, um, and again, the gym was a two car garage and we had, he had a, a list of clients that he trained who were mostly just like regular people who kind of liked to train with a very intense guy in a garage with no air conditioning in, in, uh, humid Florida. <laughs> and then, uh, in the late 90s, I started doing a AAU track, and in 1999, I qualified for uh, nationals, and they were in Cleveland, and my dad never liked to leave, you know, home, basically, and uh, he said, well, Cleveland's in Ohio, West Side's in Ohio, they must be right next to each other, <laughs> so he agreed to chaperone this, like, nine-day trip so that... Uh, basically so that he could you know I was only throwing one day and it was like the last day we were there so he's like well we'll you know the rest of the team will go to the track and he got a rental car and a couple days that week drove me down to to west side in the, the old Demarest strip mall and I got to like meet all the monsters for the first time and 
um, he kept in touch with Dave Tate, especially after that. And Dave came down in 2000, 2001, and 2004 and did some of his first uh, seminars that he really like traveled outside of the Midwest for and held them again in my dad's two-car garage, which he thought was a sort of standalone, like an actual facility. So he sold a bunch of tickets to come do this seminar again in, in August, uh, in the middle of hurricane season in a garage with no AC and uh, ended up being what he thought was gonna be a nightmare and ended up being pretty successful. Um, then I tried to go to film school. After a year, got booted for budget cutbacks, ended up doing communications, graduated, moved out to LA, thought that, that um, my athletic life and training and everything was behind me. And then um, I would wear a West Side hoodie all the time. And when I was editing and working like in the office or if I was out, on, out in the field shooting, and people would always ask me, like, you know, what's up with the dog on your shirt? Because <laughs> if you've never seen, I think they've fixed this in the new West Side hoodies. I'm not sure because they kind of streamlined their design. But in the old ones, the, the Nitro drawing, the original drawing, uh, Nitro has big ass balls yeah. on the back of the okay. shirt. So that would catch, you know, draw a lot of attention. I'm already a big dude. I'm 6'3", about 280. So uh in LA and in the world of production, I'm like, you know, I might as well be Brian Shaw. So <laughs> I already stuck out like a sore thumb, but everyone, you know, would ask me like, why do you have such an aggressive like shirt there? And I ended up telling the story. And eventually somebody approached me about putting, uh, trying to put together a reality show on West Side and asked if I would sort of be the conduit for that. And I was like, uh, I thought about it for a minute and said like, absolutely not. Because I thought like that is a really cool story. And if there was someone who could convince Louie to do it, I thought that I might be that person. And I knew that if I went to Louie and said, you know, hey, I'm, you know, out in LA and we want to put together a reality show on you, I knew that they'd say no. Um, so yeah, in about 2014, started talking to Louie. And then uh, that, you know, a year later turned into me going out there to start working on start shooting the documentary so coach you know you were of a high school throw or you did some throwing mm -hmm. as an athlete standpoint there and then you did some high school coaching as strength and conditioning coach and now you got this movie producing situation do you is there days where you just kind of look back and said hey this is kind of really bizarre this is so unique and you know was that something that you kind of have a fear of failure of you know it's kind of stepping out of your box uh no no because it actually i was i was just telling brian this before you got on um it happened the other way so i i made west side versus the world and you know there was a period from when i was had just turned 18 and kind of it was literally i was when i was 18 i was a a thrower had offers to walk on um, and had offers to, I, I want, really wanted at the time to play uh, football in the Ivy Leagues because that's what my dad had done. And my grades weren't quite up to, up to snuff. So I was gonna have to go to prep school for a year. And then some other D1s when I, uh, when word got out that I was gonna reclassify, some bigger schools started talking to me um, who had got on my recruitment late and said, you know, like, we don't have room in your, in our class this year, but next year, and I thought about, it, I was like, well, if I reclassify to go to the Ivy leagues, I'm going to end up probably going to, you know, a more of like a power five school maybe. And for some reason that sat, I didn't understand recruiting it all at the time. So that sat really like, wrong with me that these schools who I thought had slept on me suddenly with an extra year of eligibility wanted, you know, now wanted to get back in on me. Um, and at that point, I, I abruptly decided, no, I want to do film school, this thing I've had in the back of my head. 
And as soon as I made that decision, I stopped lifting. I stopped training. I thought like, I'm going to go be an artist now and I'm putting all this behind me. And then, um, I worked on a movie called Forks Over Knives about basically like plant-based diet for health reasons and stuff. Um, it's actually like way bigger than West Side versus the World, but um, I was out in LA working on like food shows and stuff. And I worked for NFL Network for a couple of years where I did my sort of like annual, like really the focus of what I did most of the year when I was at NFL Network was, um, was scouting and draft like coverage. So because I had this background of actually playing, um, which is again, pretty rare in the, the microcosm of like production work, um, I, I got a lot of like really cool scouting things to do. Like I put together probably 400 scouting reports for Mike Mayock um, video scouting reports. So like anything you would watch during the draft for about a, a maybe three drafts, I likely had put together, you know, the little highlight reel that they wow. would bring up when someone got drafted. Um, so I had all these things that, that I realized that like my history and, you know, um, as a, as a former athlete and as someone who sort of uniquely like knew the weight room and, and understood really just these two sports of like throwing and football that those became unique kind of selling points for me in the world of production. Um, so then I made West side versus the world. And I had always, I had pretty much remembered like the, the four day template and, you know, max effort and dynamic effort days and rotating exercises and, you know, the percentages and how everything worked. But, um, I knew it from that like very classic sort of powerlifting template. And then as I started shooting, um, there was a big portion, you know, there's about 40 interviews in the film and half of them are coaches, you know, going out to like the, the Cardinals facility with Pete Prinzi or going out and, you know, talking to Buddy Morris and stuff. And um, what ended up happening was over time, like, a lot of my following became strength coaches. You know, they were sort of like, you know, how that movie made money really was that strength coaches liked it. Um, and uh, so it, it offered me this opportunity to start talking to a lot of different coaches. And what I was really fascinated by, um, cause Louie wouldn't like, you know, let me really around if he got the sense that like, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Right. So I read everything. I read every article he ever wrote for powerlifting USA multiple times. I've read every book. I, you know, I, I went out and got, you know, for between 2014, July 3rd, 2014, all the way up to today. Um, there has been only a handful of days where I haven't talked to a, you know, primary source when it comes to training. Um, so I don't, I don't have any certifications, any degrees, anything like that, but I put in a lot of time and effort to talk to a lot of the people who are, you know, who wrote the books. Right. Um, and in the case of Louis, especially, you know, I not only read the books, I not only talked to him, but then I got to actually see for months on end in these different stretches over the course of years, how he actually implemented everything. And even at Westside, the most fascinating part was seeing when, you know, in between the morning crew and the night crew, that in between period when it was visiting coaches, when it was visiting athletes and seeing what he was doing with them and starting to see how, you know, that really that element of time manipulation, um, you know, making someone strong is easy, but how do you make a sprinter strong so that they run faster? You know, like that was the part that I didn't understand when I was younger, um, that coming to, coming to learn more about like, like how do I make someone run really fast or jump really high? Right. Because, uh, you know, like those are like sexy attributes and you know uh especially now that i that i do like work with sports teams where 
coaches who are not as sort of traditionally invested in the weight room will say things like, you know, well, doesn't really matter how strong they are this, but no one ever says like, it doesn't matter how fast they are. Right. Every, you know, it doesn't matter what your opinions are. Like everyone wants faster kids. Yep. Um, but so in the course of doing that, like when I started talking to coaches um, and coaches started seeing that I really was like a nerd about this stuff. And I don't, not only was I a nerd, but I was a nerd who had access that a lot of coaches didn't have because, you know, like they could, uh, like I used to talk to Bill Gillespie a lot. Um, and, you know, Bill uses elements of, of West Side. And Bill says that, you know, he, he uses all this stuff from West Side. But when you go look at what Bill does, it doesn't look like West Side. Right. Um, but as you talk to him, you can understand like, how he's assembling these elements based on largely based on like, you know, how many kids he's training and what, what kind of time constraints he has, what resources he has. And you see how he adapts everything. Um, but still coaches started, there became a point where I think it was really easy for people to get me on the phone or to talk to me or, you know, I will answer pretty much anyone at any level because I love talking about this stuff and I'm in Tallahassee, Florida. It's not like being in Columbus, you know, there's not a whole lot of people who want to talk about any of this. And my wife has certainly heard it all. So <laughs> she welcomes, you know, other people wanting to help me vent some of this stuff out. But um, yeah, so I, I became really interested in the athletic components of the training, but um, I was still just a dude who had made movies and got pretty strong myself. Um, you know, the beginning of making the movie, I couldn't squat 245 to depth. I've squatted 545 on a safety squat bar to like a 14 inch box. And again, I'm 6'3", so that's below parallel for me. Um, I've squatted 670 in briefs. I've benched 430. Um, I've done a, a four board press with 600 pounds raw. Um, so I got to do some of these experiments sort of like on myself, but I'm in my mid thirties now, like, you know, it's, it's neat to be able to do things, but like, it's not advancing my life really. Right. Um, so eventually somebody, I had moved back to Tallahassee and met, uh, met up with a kid that I used to play football with. And he said, you know, man, our old high school, like really sucks. Would you, ever be interested in training with like training them. And I thought about it and was like, yeah, that'd be really cool. I don't think they'd let me do the kind of training that I want to do. And uh, he came back and said, no, I talked to the coach. He doesn't care what they do. Like, you know, they, so I went and talked with the coach and sure enough, the coach said like, I'm not a weight room guy. I understand I'm not a weight room guy. You know, like if this is what you want to do, have at it. And so suddenly I had like, 70 kids at my disposal and uh you know they had they'd come from not really doing a whole lot and they didn't really you know no one was there was no programming or anything um but so the fear of failure and stuff like i had to get over that for the film stuff way way earlier <laughs> coach you know as we talk about the the documentary and things like that i thought one of the most unique things that as I've watched it and I love watching it. Um, I think my wife's seen it a good dozen times with me. Um, she always laughs when I put it on. I usually put it on the night before I go to speak anywhere mm -hmm. because I usually talk about the conjugate method, how we utilize it for athletes. Um, now I utilize it at Wisconsin, but it's interesting because every time I watch it, I pick up a little nugget that I'm like, Oh, I got to share that tomorrow. But I thought one of the most interesting things is you were able to interview so many guys that had trained there but one of the unique things about some of those guys is they had been kicked out or they had been asked to leave the gym. So what was that process like? You know what I mean? Because some of those guys had gone on to do great things somewhere else. Um, you know, how was talking to those guys about Westside when they had been thrown out of Westside? Um, it, it was, it was wild from a couple standpoints. Again, like I had fought in my house, Westside was like a team. My dad, um, my dad grew up in Chicago, so I inherited 
all the Chicago area sports teams. You know, we, we were a Bears, Bulls, Cubs house. And our fourth team, but it was probably the team that we actually talked the most about when I was in high school, was Westside. So we followed it like we were like fans, you know, and, and having no real idea how small that sport really was in that time. Um, but, uh, you know, so he would, he would talk to Dave Tate every once in a while. He would talk to Louie every now and then. Um, and we, you know, we got Powerlifting USA every month. So we knew some things about like who was at the gym, who had come, who had left, but you, you got the version that like was fit to print. Right. You didn't get like, you didn't get sometimes the animosities or hostilities or you didn't, you didn't know if, you know, sometimes you, you just thought like, oh, this person just doesn't train there anymore. Like they, you know, like they're just done competing or they had to, you know, you didn't take uh, any of these moves maybe as serious as they had actually ended up being. So I remember um, Louie, when it, it took about from June or from July, 2014 until probably mid-September, 2014, before Louie said yes. And we would talk every, every few weeks and when Louis said yes, um, he said yes, like a few minutes into the call. And I did like a George Costanza, like got the answer I wanted, you know, and I was like, all right, Lou, like before you change your mind, I'm out, you know, send me a list of some people you think would be good for me to talk to. And I already knew some of the people that I wanted to talk to. Um, again, like I, through my dad already known like Dave Tate and stuff, but even, you know, Louie and Dave, like, you know, their relationships had ups and downs and, um, you know, business wise, they're, they're sort of like rivals and, um, it, like, so I, I remember like I talked to Dave very early on and, um, Dave gave me a lot of perspective on just dealing with Louie, um, as someone who had kind of, uh, where we going any farther here. Cause I've yeah. heard Dave talk a lot. Make sure you remember we got high school kids listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try and watch my, watch my mouth. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just saying, uh, you know, like they had, uh, Dave gave me like some, some really valuable sort of, uh, introspection, uh, as to the idea that like, their relationship had had highs and lows and, you know, he had been away from the, from Westside for a long time. Westside was, you know, doing all their manufacturing with other people. Um, so they had got, they went through periods where like their businesses were very copacetic and then, you know, more adversarial and whatnot. Um, and Dave kind of explained like, you know, at the end of the day, like people are gonna have their, you know, some people are, people are pr basically at some point, like you're going to go through a rough patch with, with Louie, like in part because he wants so much out of you. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's like with any great coach, whether it's, you know, Phil Jackson and, you know, Kobe had their runs where Kobe wanted Phil gone. And then Kobe knew he needed Phil back to win. Um, and, you know, just like as an athlete matures, realizing that like that coach who's really on you, who, who you know, like it's, it's a two-way thing where like the coach sometimes doesn't understand. And I'm a very like intense person. So I try and think about this stuff a lot, especially now that I deal with kids that like, I can't really like press my ambition onto them in the same way um, because maybe it like, 13, 14 years old, that's not healthy for them to be as excited about their potential as I am. Um, but uh, yeah, Dave gave me some advice as far as like, you know, he kind of outlined like, you know, people get to West Side, they love Louie and then, you know, and Louie loves them. And then after a while, they're not like the new toy anymore. 
And some people are okay with that and they're there forever. Um, some people see the sort of mania and chaos of the gym and they don't buy into it at all ever. So they're able to stay very even keeled all the way through. Like someone like uh, Amy was kind of that way. George Halbert's kind of that way where they, they kind of see like, oh, you know, like Louis gets excited, Louis's less excited. Like I'm not going to get on the ride. I'm gonna let him oscillate as he does. And he's gonna have good and bad days. And I just understand that there will be more days. So I'm just gonna get through to the next thing. Uh, but there are other people who, you know, they take, they take it sort of more personally, how everyone responds to them. And so when they are that new shiny toy, they loved it. They're all about it. But eventually there comes that point where they're not the shiny new toy anymore. And sometimes they interpret that as like having a beef with Louie. Um, and sometimes it leads to like very chaotic and explosive blowups and whatnot. But so I remember I was talking to, uh, Louie gave me this list of people to talk to. Um, and it had phone numbers and email addresses and stuff. And I remember I, I talked to, uh, I talked to Greg Panora and this is in like early 2015. Greg hadn't talked to Louie since the day that he left. And so his, the last words that he had said to Louie are in the movie um, and there's kids watching. So, uh, you know, y'all can watch it with your parents on uh, Amazon or whatever, or YouTube rent it. Um, but so like he, he basically cussed Louie out and this is like six years later and they'd never spoken. They'd never reconciled. And I don't know any of that because no one wrote that story in powerlifting USA. Um, so I just knew like, Oh, I knew that Greg had a stroke. I knew that he had stepped away from powerlifting for a while. I knew that he had moved back to Maine. So again, I just thought like, oh, those are very reasonable reasons why you wouldn't be at the gym anymore. You know, like there's, there's no reason to read anything more into that. And we're talking and, you know, Greg is always a good like story and whatnot. And out of nowhere, he just kind of says like, man, you know, Louie's really going to kill you if he knows that I'm talking to, or that you're talking to me. Uh, and I said like, what do you mean? He says, well, like, I think he hates me. And I was like, really? Cause I'd already, I'm like, I've talked to Louie at this point for like 30 hours on the phone and he's always just raved about you and, you know, said like, oh, if he was still training with me, he'd be, you know, one of the, he might be the greatest ever. He might be Hoff. Like, uh, but Louie had never let in to like the fact that there might be bad. I don't know if Louie like, fully realized what you know I think like their their relationship in particular I don't think that Louis realized when Greg walked out the door that Greg was leaving for good and I don't think Greg realized that Greg could have walked back in the door the next day and said like you know like not even said sorry right and that Louis would have just accepted it back because Louis is a very rough and tumble person. He, you know, like uh, he doesn't emotionally respond the same way that a lot of other people do. There are things that he takes personally, but they're not the same things that everyone else does. But, uh, and then the wildest part was that the number I was calling Greg on wasn't even Greg's number. It was like his girlfriend's number. So I don't know how Louis like Louis was like, you know, these people who all thought that they were so estranged, like Louis was still paying attention to what they were doing. Um, and then similarly with, uh, you know, a few other, I know that Greg wouldn't take any offense to, to saying that like he thought Louis hated him and, and that, you know, they were much further apart. And then Greg's first day back to the gym, um, was my first day at the gym with a camera meeting Louie since I had been 12 years old in 1999. So I came back to the gym with and brought Greg and hadn't, again, hadn't really known the severity of, of anything. 
and immediately, you know, like the next day, all these older West Side people who had kind of had rough fallings out all reached out to me and were like, you know, do you understand what you just did? Do you? And I was like, I don't, no one knows the politics of that place, you know, the next door over in the strip mall that they're in, they don't know what's going on. No one knows and no one cares. So I was like, I didn't, I just had no idea really. And Louis's kind of mindset was like, you know, I think Louis's idea or opinion is that like, he can absolutely hate you as a person, but still admire like your achievement and your work. And I think he expects that in return that like, even if you hate him, he's like, you know, my role is not to be your friend. Right. Um, which is, you know, for some people's a coaching style that works and for some other people's a coaching style, you know, other people in other places, probably not the best way to go about things, but uh, that's what makes Louis Louis. Hey, Michael, you take all this footage, you know, and you must experience all those, you know, the challenge of being on that roller coaster there, because it sounds like you've had a lot of experiences there when you were doing the film and you're doing all the footage. And obviously that was over, you know, quite a period of time. So how do you decide as, as a producer of what to use and what not to use when you're putting the film together? Um, the hardest part is, A, finding footage, because with that gym, you know, like, um, there, there's not a whole lot of cameras in there. Um, Louis never liked cameras, you know, Chuck and, and most of those guys, you know, it, it's not like it, you can go to any golds or planet fitness or, you know, anything nowadays. And you'll see all the like young 20 somethings lined up with their, you know, <laughs> if they're doing deadlifts, they bring a tripod and, it's the weirdest thing to me and I'm I come from production and uh but uh it's uh it was hard just to find stuff and especially you know you, you have to like understand one of the things that's so amazing like um say talking to like Bob Coe Bob Bob one day we had a conversation um that was really really cool for me uh it was you know, probably a year or so after the movie came out. And we talked about how he, you know, they had no idea they were doing anything when they were there. No one went to that gym expecting like, people are going to know me because of this. No one thought like, oh, we're building something here. Um, I'm a, like, I'm very fascinated by, uh, by stories obviously and to me like training is like a story and the idea that like you know you you train an eight-year-old and an 18-year-old they respond to different stimuluses separately but they might it, you know they might be the same person you know the eight-year-old becomes eventually the 18-year-old and the 18-year-old eventually becomes the you know 35-year-old um and the, mo you know, the motivations for everything change over time. So like, they were, no one was really like cataloging stuff. They didn't, they didn't understand like, you know, hey, we're building this. They didn't know YouTube was gonna come along. They didn't know Instagram was gonna come along. Um, you know, there's so many people, especially now who are like very harsh critics of Louie, who, you know, they hate conjugate or they think Louie's just trying to sell stuff. Um, and meanwhile, they are trying to promote themselves and become basically this archetype that did not exist before Louis, you know, of like the online programming guru who's, who's got, you know, like you look at all the gyms that exist, you know, like before West side, there weren't gyms that were built around the idea of like, oh, this is going to be this American think tank of lifting. And, you know, now there's all these people out there, um, whether it's, you know, and, and not to, not to draw any like negative light to them, but there are people like, you know, we wouldn't have Mark Bell's or Chris Duffin's or, uh, you know, we yeah. wouldn't have, we wouldn't have these kind of, the idea of someone existing like that, who's like, 
separate, uh, uh, a sort of like curator of knowledge within this space who has a gym that you want to go to, who sells stuff that you want to buy, who says things that you want to listen to. That didn't really exist before Louis. And Louis didn't know that that was what he was building when he was doing it. He was just a super passionate guy. Um, but so there was a lot of stuff like, luckily again, because my dad was sort of like this West Side super fan, he had bought, you know, like he bought the, the tape that, um, the force, whatever it was called, the force tape that he did with the Packers. With Kent Johnson. Yeah. Um, Louis didn't have a copy of that. Louis didn't keep those. So there, I mean, like there's, there's literally stuff that like, if you're part of the conjugate club, yeah. there's old VHS tapes that they made available on the conjugate club. Those didn't come from West side. Those came because I tracked them down and then digitized them and gave West side a hard drive. That was giving me my question because like some the, the videos from way, way back had have been VHS copies. Uh-huh. Had have been. Yeah. And they weren't VHS copies that Louis, you know, Louis, once he sold them, he didn't, he didn't keep them. Right. You know, like it, which is both like really frustrating as a filmmaker and really like cool because again, it's, you know, like he says in the movie, you know, like uh, when they win, win awards and stuff, like he'd chuck them in hotel rooms. Like uh, there is always this very genuine idea of the things I'm doing right now aren't even the good things. Like they're just on the way. So I'm not even cat, like I'm not even worried about this stuff. So, so Michael, just, just a quick, yeah. on Louis, like how much input did he have in the production? But then also what, a, I mean, I could say this cause I'm a gym owner. What a great message to all people who work with athletes, anything like that is don't think about like the money and like all the fame and all the other things that come. If you just take care of the people that you are working with mm -hmm. and if you just do your job and invest into the people that are in your gym or in your high school or whatever, good things are going to happen because if you're just mm -hmm. a good person, you know, and I don't, I, I've never talked to Louie. I've never met Louie. I intend to hopefully at some point, but if you're just a person that really is about doing what you feel is best for other people, I mean, just look at it. Like, like you said, YouTube wasn't around when, you know, guys like Chuck were, and, and some of the other people that were there were training yet. I mean, there's just so much knowledge that has been gained, you know, from all the things that they've done because now, and now you have people one-offing them, right? We're going to try and copy it, but we're going to spin off this way. So I'm, I'm interested yeah. real quick. Real quick, because we're we're going pretty long here. How how um how much input Louis had in the production? Um, Louis had basically no input in the production. Um, you know, he he said the very first time he said yes, we can do this. Um, it, it wasn't even a firm yes. It was he said I think we can do this, and I said like, well, let's cut all the BS and assume that. I'm going to get you one day. I'm going to catch you in a good mood one day. You're going to make a mistake, pick up that phone, and you're going to say yes a little too emphatically, and you're going to regret it later. So let's just skip to the point where you told me yes, and now you regret it. How, what do we need to do? And he said, a couple of days later, he said, uh, you know, well, I have, I have one rule, and really he had two rules. But the first rule, he says, I don't want to get paid. And I said, well, good, because if you got paid, it would really actually wouldn't be ethically speaking a documentary because I'm paying you now. Like, right. um, so you would be an actor and this would be a, you know, and he said, so I don't want to get paid. I don't want to make any money from this. And I was like, well, you're going to make money from this because I'm going to do a good job. So, you know, like, love you or hate you, people are going to be fascinated and, you know, you're going to sell t-shirts. Um, he kind of laughed at that. And I think at that time, again, I was, uh, a lesson I always tell people is, you know, like at that point I was 27. I don't think he had any belief whatsoever that this movie would actually get made. And why would he, he didn't know me. He didn't know my resume. Uh, he didn't, he knew him. He knew what I was facing. I didn't really know what I was facing. Um, 
but there's no way that he could know how persevering I was until I showed him, you know, which I tell to young people all the time, whether it's athletes, what, you know, everyone's, everyone thinks they're slept on. And I say like, you're not slept on. You're just not showing, you know, like what have you done to show your potential? Um, but the second, the second rule was, uh, he, he said like, please don't, uh, please don't put anything in there that incriminates anyone. That just like very literally, he was like, please don't allow someone to like say something on camera that will get them arrested. <laughs> and, uh, and so in, as part of that, there was a pass where Louie alone, someone, someone representing Louie got to listen to every word that he said specifically <laughs> uh, so that there was nothing that was incriminating. And they didn't change a word, nothing was changed. Um, so he didn't, he didn't have any real input. To have input, you would have needed to watch it, which he, likes to say he's never seen it. I don't necessarily buy that at all, but you know, it, I know that before it came out, I know before it came out, he didn't see it. So uh, he couldn't actually have any input on it because he, he stayed far, far away from it. Hey, Michael, you're an athlete, you're a coach, you know, part of our podcast, you know, obviously it's called Get Your Edge Podcast and all of our listeners are looking for that you know, competitive advantage, what would your get your edge advice be for the athletes and coaches that are listening right now? Um, the, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing I would probably say, and again, this might just be because of my personality, I'm very into data. I'm very into, I don't think I'm a very good filmmaker. I don't think I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm honestly a better coach than I am a filmmaker, even though that's only what I've done for a couple of years. But I've done a lot of things in my life and I've been pretty successful um, at most of them. And it's not because I'm uniquely amazing at anything. It's mostly because uh, it's mostly because like I just have focused more and I've paid attention and, you know, like I track I don't think I have anything here. Oh, no, I do. So here's here's like my girls. This is a sheet that I bring in. Just I use Google Sheets to track my kids' data um, and assign them. You know, like they're for that it was to assign them their their speed squat and speed bench numbers, and um, I have on there as well like their vertical jump numbers, their dumbbell jumps, their broad jumps. Um, but by tracking and paying attention to things, when I was young, I, I wrote my workouts down in a notebook. Um, so every, you know, every time, like say a two board press came up in the rotation, I would look back at what did I get last time? You know, and it, that would immediately give me context of, I knew each, you know, because it might be three months before I came back to that variation. I knew consciously that I was better. I already knew that. I already knew that I was stronger. But if I didn't go back and look at that number, um, I, I've seen kids do this where like, you know, a kid squats 245 one month and then the next month comes back to the same variation and squats 245 again. Now I know that they've gotten stronger. You know, like everything else went up. But the problem becomes that kid didn't remember that he squatted 245 last time. So he made the exact same jumps and he thought, well, I did like 235. So 10 pounds a month, that's pretty good. I'm on pace for 120 pounds a year. Because uh, I, I talked to him about, you know, like, like what Louis said, like the plan, two and a half pounds a month, that's 60 pounds a year, you know, between summer of your freshman year and, you know, going into your senior year, that's conservatively 180 pounds. 
So if my average freshman, when I was at the, the first school where the average kid was coming in, hadn't done any lifting prior to, they averaged two years in a row, two different classes, 30 kids in each class. The average was a, a 105 point something pounds. And so I would tell them, you know, like when I was a freshman, I came in, I think I benched 110. And the summer before my senior year, I benched 370. So I tell them, you know, like you, you have to pay attention to the small gains that you're making. Yes. And likewise, as coaches, you know, if you can get, uh, again, from my time at like NFL Network and stuff, like I'm very into analytics and everything. And how analytics like really like work is simply that you're paying attention to the number. You know, it's the same as like being on a diet. If I have kids who are trying to gain or lose weight, I tell them, you know, like, all right, get yourself a notebook and write down every morning and every night what you weigh. And that right there will solve most of the problems because now you're simply aware and you're conscious of what your goal is. So now I don't need to tell you, you're going to, if you're trying to gain weight, you're going to try and beat that number on the scale. You know, every, you might step on the scale and go, Oh, I'm a cup, you know, I'm 0.4 lighter than I was yesterday. You go eat a bowl of ice cream and now you step back on you're 0.2 heavier. (laughs) And now you wake up and you go, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, you know, 0.1 or 0.2 heavier than I was the day before. And eventually all those tiny gains equal, you know, a mountain of progress. Right. Consistency is such a huge thing in training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, Michael, real quick here, um, I, I and I talked to you a little bit off camera here before before we shut it down, and you got a picture of, of Chuck in the background. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I asked you um, why Chuck wasn't interviewed. Mm-hmm in the, in the documentary is such, he was such a huge part of West side. So give us a quick two minute on that one, because I mean, he is, you know, he was such a huge part of the documentary. Yeah. Everyone asked me why I didn't interview Chuck, um, which is a very obvious question. Um, and if you know Chuck at all, it's a very obvious, it, the people who know Chuck don't ask the question. Right. Um, Chuck is an intensely sort of secretive person. Um, he, you know, go back and look, there's one interview of him on camera. It was very short. It appears in bigger, stronger, faster. I think he has two lines. Um, to my knowledge, he's not on any podcasts, uh, you know, and it kind of turned into a happy accident where him not being in it. Uh, just made him seem that much more mysterious. You want to know more about him because he wasn't there. So we got to portray him solely through the impression that he left on other people, which I think, you know, it wasn't what I wanted to do, but it was what I had to do because um, I got Chuck as far as a maybe, but I could never get, you know, I got him to 49%. I could never get him over that, you know, 51% tipping point. Right. Um, and eventually just, we had to put out the movie. Um, but Chuck did see one of the first screenings of the movie and, uh, he sat dead center front row. Um, and at the end of the movie, I had to walk up and most people who were in the theater, it was a sold out screening. Most people didn't know he was there. Um, cause he came in kind of late and he just, we'd saved the seat for him and he just kind of crouched down and snuck up and, uh, I, I had to leave the theater. I was like, I don't, I don't want, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with He's sitting there, his, his heel was just tapping, his legs bouncing, which is normal for Chuck, but he was leaned way forward as you know, he didn't relax and sit back into his seat the whole time. I kept poking my head in and uh, you just see the, the white, you know, light reflecting off the, the screen onto his face. Um, and I walked up and the very first question was, why didn't you interview Chuck Vogelbull? And they didn't realize that Chuck was sitting about 10 feet in front of him. And I just looked at Chuck and I said, well, Chuck knows why. And he just kind of looked at me and I, I said, uh, 
I said, you know, like if you can find, if you can find me one other interview in the last 10 years of Chuck, you know, like I'll like, I'll refund you. Um, but I, I just said, you know, like Chuck had the opportunity. Chuck said, no, we would have loved Chuck, but in the end, I think he did me a solid by not doing it. And I asked Chuck after that, that initial screening that he saw, which was of a longer version of the movie, um, about two hours. So we cut it down probably 25 minutes or so. Um, but I said like, all right, Chuck, like, you know, you, you didn't tell me your side of things before. How do we do? And he just kind of looked at me and went, it's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, so you don't have any, you don't have any qualms with it? And, nah. <laughs> I was like, all right. And, you know, the next time I saw him, he didn't punch me in the face or anything. So, uh, you know, if, if Chuck has words about it, they're not, they're not so harsh that he's, you know, too upset to speak to me still. So. Well, that's awesome. Michael, can you share your contact info? I know you got two different Instagram sites for our listeners. Yeah, um, my movie stuff is um, at Westside Film, and I'm working on another powerlifting documentary right now that I've been shooting since 2018. And the goal is that that will probably be available for purchase, I think, um, very early next year. Because um, I'll probably finish it this year, and then there's always a few months delay where, you know, it's got to get uploaded to all of the different vendors and whatnot. Um, and then my other one where it's mostly my coaching stuff, which coaching is the thing that I actually really enjoy. Um, talking training is the thing that I enjoy, but that's at burn the ladders. Yep. Um, so yeah, on Instagram, Twitter, burn the ladders. If you like the coaching stuff, West side film, if you want more of the production type stuff. Well, that's awesome. Dino, you got anything else for coach? No. Hey, thanks again. Appreciate you being on and. I'm looking forward to, to more of your um, pr productions and everything. Yeah, yeah. looking forward to the next one. And, and definitely, Coach, if, if I'm down in Florida, I'm definitely going to come down and see you. And if I can talk to my wife, I'm sure she'll she come down there with, you know, the warmer weather. I think it's a lot easier to try and travel and stuff like that. So we really appreciate you being on, taking time, uh, sharing a lot of great insight with our listeners. We'll have everything in the show notes for, so people can contact you and, and I, and I will say I, I, I had never met uh, Michael until today, actually face to face. But, um, you know, we do tag West Side Film sometimes in our stuff and he's or, or I'll message him. and He always messages me right back. So I really appreciate that um, as a fellow coach. Um, there's not enough of that going on in our industry, unfortunately, where people can just freely message each other without thinking there's there's something else in the in the works. But I really appreciate that. So. That ends this episode of the Get Your Edge podcast. We'll see you next time. Chop it.